Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Live from Liverpool, the dark paranormal. Season two. Hello, and welcome to the Dark Paranormal. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and today we're going to continue our look into the haunting in Connecticut and a more detailed look at the Snedeker family themselves. At the conclusion of today's story, we'll also as usual, take a look at some of the counterclaims that throw this story into dispute. But firstly, I'd like to thank each and every one of you who reached out with some feedback regarding last week's show. It means I'm doing something right if each week I can check the inbox at thedarkparanormal@hotmail.com and see that people have taken time out of their day not only to listen to the show, but to get in touch. So, Once again, if you have something that you'd like to say to the show, or indeed, if you have a story you'd like us to read out in Season 3, then please get in touch by emailing thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com. Once again, I'd like to thank all of our patrons for making this show possible. Signing up to our Patreon will give you early access to each and every episode, meaning the thing you're hearing now, our patrons have already heard head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. Each and every member that signs up helps the show to continue for yet another episode. And I'm being totally sincere when I say the show literally couldn't survive without you. So if you're a fan of the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. We left the Snedeker family in somewhat of a terrifying situation last week. Young Tammy had just found out there was an intruder in her bedroom. So let's once more join the Snedeker family as we continue and conclude a haunting in Connecticut. Tammy was laying on her stomach reading her magazine. Carmen had took Philip to hospital and the others were out for the afternoon. Radio on and idly flicking through the pages when suddenly... Tammy... A male voice from the doorway, one she didn't recognise. What? She said from her prone position. 
No reply. Hello, she said, closing the magazine and walking to the radio, turning it off. She stood, one hand on the radio volume, the other holding her magazine, listening out. Is someone back? She shouted from his stationary position. God damn, she muttered as she headed to the doorway. Hello? Again, silence filled the house. She decided it must have been something she misheard on the radio and turned back to her room and screamed. Matt, you psycho! She shouted, throwing the magazine at the figure stood at her window. Matt's eyes were black, not dark, black. What the hell are you doing? said a calming Tammy. How the hell did you get past me like that? She said, angrily putting her hands on her hips. Matt stayed silent and just stared at her. What do you want, you freak? said Tammy. Still no response. She felt a chill go down her spine. Matt smiled. Tammy, he repeated, in the exact same voice she'd heard from the doorway. Matt stepped forward. Tammy froze. Matt didn't seem human. He stroked her fringe away from her eyes. Tammy, he said, the same voice again, not Matt's. He slowly gripped the hair at the back of her head. Tammy was unable to move with terror. Anyone home? Can you help with this shopping? Carmen's voice shouted up from the hallway. Tammy shot a look to the door. Finally, someone was home. Just as she was about to scream for help, she felt Matt release the back of her hair. The release of pressure causing her to fall back. Matt was gone. She didn't see him leave, but Matt was no longer in the room. She began shaking, a deep, silent sobbing. Hey, what's up? said Matt, now standing in Tammy's doorway, his eyes and voice now seemingly back to normal. Tammy just stared at him. Are you for real? she said through her stuttering breath. Whatever. Coming, Mum, said Matt as he headed down the stairs to help Carmen with her bags. The next day, Carmen had an afternoon of housework planned. She'd just finished her daily call with the hospital. Thankfully, all was well with Philip, and he'd experienced no night terrors since being admitted. She turned the radio on and filled a bucket with soapy water to start mopping the floor. She didn't want to focus on Philip's situation, mainly because if it's not in Philip's head, that means it's something else. That means something's in the house. And she really didn't have the mental space for thoughts like that. A foul smell stopped Carmen in her tracks. She couldn't quite place its location, but it grew stronger and more intense. A vile, putrid smell, like a rotting animal. Its sudden arrival put Carmen on edge. It was as if a presence in itself. Then, what was that? 
a black shape shot past the kitchen doorway. No, no, there's a rational explanation for this. There has to be. She absentmindedly continued mopping the floor while staring at the doorway. Something stood out in the bottom of her vision. A darkness moving across the white tiled floor. She looked down. Blood. The bucket was filled with blood and she'd been spreading it across the floor. Then the wall started to close in. Carmen dropped the mop and backed away into the living room, keeping her focus on the blood on the kitchen floor. Movement. Out of the corner of her eye, Carmen shot her panicked eyes towards the shape. But she couldn't accept what she was seeing. There, in a pinstripe suit in the doorway, was a thin, tall man. Sharp cheekbones, a streak of white hair. His jet-black eyes stared at Carmen. She looked down, taking in this apparition. His feet were in constant motion, although he wasn't moving at all. Carmen wasn't sure how long she hadn't took a breath for, but she was beyond panic. Another shape, now in the kitchen doorway, caught her eye. A woman, long black hair, jet black eyes. Again, her feet constantly moving. The walls began to close in further, and Carmen blacked out. Carmen, Carmen, honey. Al had finished work early and came home to the shocking sight of Carmen crumpled on the floor. She slowly started moving, so he rushed to fetch some water. What happened, Carmen? It slowly all came back to Carmen, her eyes going from hazy to frantic as the memories returned. Blood, blood in the kitchen, she said, jumping to her feet and heading to the doorway. Nothing. Just a mop on the floor and a small pool of water. There was blood on the floor, all over the floor, and there was a man stood in the doorway. Al rubbed her arms to comfort her as she looked over his shoulder to the doorway. Shh, he said, attempting to soothe her. Al, I saw it. It was real. I know what I saw. Maybe Philip. Maybe Philip was telling the truth. That evening, Carmen had an early night, and so Al cooked dinner for the family. When all the kids had returned to the rooms, Al started to wash the dishes. He noticed a piece of paper on the table and picked it up to read. He was sickened as he read on. It was a not very coherent attempt of a poem, The writing described a murder in exceptionally vivid detail. But that wasn't the worst part. The poem ended with the murderer going on to commit necrophilia with the victim. And, as if proud of his work, it was signed off. Matt. Al was stunned. He was in half a mind to run upstairs and confront Matt. But at the same time, He didn't want to be the cause of any further stress to Carmen. He slowly folded the paper and placed it in his back pocket. In deep thought, he turned back to continue the dishes. He couldn't help but be concerned for Carmen and what she believed she'd experienced. 
Maybe the stress of everything had broken her somehow. Maybe she... Music. He turned the tap off and listened intently. Big band music, like swing. Very faint, but like it was coming from the living room. He went to lean back to try and get a view into the living room, when something pinned his hips to the edge of the work surface. Then what felt like hands pinned his hands flat on the kitchen worktop. And then a presence, a heavy, all-encompassing presence, pressed against his back. He couldn't breathe. He felt helpless. Then as soon as it arrived, it stopped. Al backed himself up to the corner of the kitchen, fighting for breath. What on earth? Carmen walked into the kitchen. I feel like I should apologise for before, she began, not noticing the panic and terror across Al's face. She made herself a glass of water. Al decided to just compose himself. He couldn't tell Carmen what just happened. Well, because in truth, he didn't know what just happened. You don't need to apologise, he said after regaining his breath. It's a stressful time for all of us. Yeah, I guess you're right, nodded Carmen, reaching out and hugging Al. That evening, Tammy was once again struggling to sleep. She hadn't slept much since her incident with Matt, and now it was a regular occurrence for her to still be awake as the clock on her bedside table clicked past 2am. She closed her eyes for the umpteenth time and took some deep breaths. No, she was wide awake. So awake, she knew she didn't stand a chance of sleeping. Tammy wore rosary beads, more for fashion than faith, but fiddling with them acted as a kind of stress relief. So she reached up with her hand to begin thumbing them. Unable to feel them, she assumed the clasp must have come undone and so opened her eyes to try and locate the beads. As she'd done so, she located the rosary immediately. It had not left her neck, but the reason she hadn't felt them was they were now floating above her chest, as if something was pulling at the crucifix. She froze. The crucifix turned slowly from left to right, as if something was examining it in their fingers. It felt like an eternity until the crucifix slowly fell back to her chest. She took a breath for the first time in minutes. Scratch! It was as if a giant clawed hand had scraped across her chest at speed, ripping the rosary from her neck, the beads slamming into the adjacent wall. Then it felt like many hands had grabbed her from her skull to her feet and flipped her over on the bed, pinning her down. Under her nightclothes, she felt hands groping her violently. In both ears, she could hear malevolent laughter. And then it stopped. All of it. Tammy dived to the light switch and frantically looked around the room. She was alone. She could feel the sting of fresh cuts on her arms and back, and checking the mirror could see what looked like claw marks coupled with bruises. There was no other explanation. It must have somehow been Matt. The next day, Tammy sat down with Carmen and Al 
and told them about the night before, about her previous run-in with Matt, and how she no longer felt safe with him in the house. Once Tammy left the adults to discuss things, Al pulled out the poem of Matt's, which he'd found on the kitchen table. I just can't believe it, said Carmen. I know. Listen, I believe Tammy. This poem's the icing on the cake. I think we need to get him seen to. What do you mean? asked Carmen. Like a psychiatrist, said Al. We can't do that to our son, protested Carmen. But we can, and we are. What's the alternative? We wait until he attacks someone again? Or worse? Although she didn't want to admit it, Al was right. This was a fork in the road, and she wouldn't forgive herself if she didn't do anything and Matt ended up hurting someone. And so, it was arranged for Matt to be admitted to a local psychiatric facility for a few weeks of observation. The house, now less populated, initially seemed a brighter place to be. Carmen had arranged to meet with a support group of parents whose children suffered with Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was a breakfast meet-up, so Carmen was up early to get ready. It was clearly going to be a good day. The sun was shining, the house felt welcoming and warm, and for the first time since they arrived, yes, she thought, today will be a good day. Stepping into the shower, Carmen smiled as she heard a radio from outside the sound of the water drowning out parts of the tune. She challenged herself to try and identify the song. Well, there was no singing. An instrumental, perhaps. A brass section. Maybe like... swing music. Big band. Maybe... swoosh. The shower curtain wrapped around her head. She was in shock. She could hardly breathe the curtain being pulled tighter over her head, across her mouth. She clawed at the material in vain. She was being suffocated. She could make out a tall, thin, black shape through the opaque material that covered her eyes. Frantically, she flailed her arms and kicked out with her legs, shampoo bottles flying across the room. Just as she thought she was going to pass out, She felt a hand grip her shoulder and start pulling at the curtain. It finally fell free from her face. And there stood a panicked Tammy. Carmen, Carmen, what happened? It's the house, it's in the house, it's the house, screamed Carmen. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It was the day following this harrowing attack that Carmen reached out to the infamous demonologist duo Ed and Lorraine Warren. Figuring this sounded potentially like the biggest case of their career since Amityville, the duo, along with paranormal researcher John Zaffis, moved themselves into the Snedeker family home 
and carried out a lengthy and detailed investigation. Lorraine believed herself to be something of a medium and told the Snedekers that the only true way to get to the bottom of the haunting was to conduct a series of seances. The most harrowing one took place by candlelight on a stormy Saturday evening. Ed, Lorraine, John Zaffis, Carmen and Al all joined hands around a table that had been brought into the dimly lit living room. Spirits of this house, began Lorraine in her frail, high-pitched voice. Come to us now. Share with us your story. Tell us why you are plaguing this poor family. Silence. Al glanced around the table, eventually making eye contact with Ed. Ed slowly nodded. Thud. A deep, hollow sound vibrated the entire room, as if a heavy object upstairs had been dropped on the floor. Hello, spirit. We do not mean you any harm. Lorraine now had her eyes closed. She slowly began rocking back and forth. You you can't do that, she muttered to herself. Somewhere in the kitchen, an object fell to the floor. No, that's unholy in the eyes of God. She was now shouting, eyes still closed, the rocking becoming more and more violent. Ed, Ed, help me, shouted Lorraine, causing Ed to kick his chair away and take a knee. Stroking Lorraine's face, he said, Come back to us, Lorraine, come back to us. Come back. Slowly, Lorraine came too. She opened up her eyes and said, This house is evil. There are things. I I need to speak to my husband. Lorraine took Ed's hand and led him to the kitchen. Well, what the hell was that? Asked Al, switching his focus between Carmen and John. I've been on many investigations with Ed and Lorraine, said John. And I've never seen Lorraine taken over like that. He said that whilst he was writing frantically in his notebook. Al, Carmen, said Ed, stood in the doorway holding Lorraine's hand. I'm afraid it's awful news. The Warrens turned the lights back on and sat back at the table. There's no easy way to say this, but your house is infested with demons and it's going to need an exorcism. A what? asked Al. Demons, plural? Yes, interrupted Lorraine. You see, I've just made contact with an awful presence. It told me a doorway was created between their side and ours due to, well... Well, when this was a funeral home, some of the staff had uh, relations with the bodies. The room fell silent. Lorraine continued. And when something as abhorrent as that takes place, it can leave a mark. Or, if it's as vile as what took place here, it can create a portal between our world and a world of darkness. The Snedekers were lost for words. 
They both, however, had the same thought. Whatever needed to be done to end this needed to be done now. So, the exorcism. Who does it? When can it be done? We want this taken care of right now, said Al, hitting his finger on the table to emphasise the words. Lorraine glanced at Ed. Ed threw his arms open and with a smile not befitting the occasion, said, I have the best damn Catholic priest in the States and he can get here tomorrow. Lorraine smiled at Ed and rubbed his arm in support. Now, let's get some rest and then first thing in the morning, the priest will be with us. And so, they moved the table back into the kitchen and returned to the living room to sleep for the evening. All except John, who continued to document what he'd witnessed that evening. A few hours later, as he was tying things up for the night, he noticed a chill start to fill the room. He suddenly felt surrounded by something unseen. He called out to the others, but no one replied. He glanced up the stairs as something caught his attention. A mist was starting to form. Then a stench filled his nostrils, a cross between sulphur and rotten meat. The mist slowly began to take form, and from behind it he could hear what sounded like a thousand birds flapping their wings. His heart raced, he gulped for breath. The apparition slowly descended the stairs. It looked like it had the head of a goat, Horns barely visible, and the rest of the body slowly forming into that of a man. It paused on the bottom step. John hoped beyond hope it didn't know he was there. Those hopes were dashed, however, when it shot its head around and stared at him. Its mouth opened, and out came what sounded like a plethora of voices. Do you know what they did to us? Do you know? John grabbed his pad and his car keys and shot out of the front door. He chose to not return to the Snedeker house. The next morning, Ed and Lorraine welcomed Father Andrews to the Snedeker home and explained the situation. Together, the three walked through the home. Lorraine held her head in prayer as they entered each room, whilst Ed flicked holy water and shouted demands for the spirits to leave, almost leading the priest. Carmen seemed in awe of the proceedings, but Al couldn't help but pick up an air of showmanship, as if part of this exorcism was for their entertainment. The priest left shortly after the final blessing, and Ed approached Al and Carmen. Appearing physically drained, he said, Son of a bitch, you almost had me but I conquered it. You won't have any more trouble here. Amen, said Lorraine, raising her arms. Amen, replied Carmen with a smile. Al didn't join in. So that's it then, it's gone. Sensing Al's lack of belief, Ed reached out and held Al's elbow. Friend, I can guarantee you, this house is now empty of evil. Al reluctantly nodded. Okay, thank you. 
the Warrens walked out the house. Carmen hugged Al and said, I can feel it. Whatever was here, they've got rid of it. We're free, Al. We're free. And, if the story is to be believed, the haunting in Connecticut finally came to an end. The tale you just heard is my breakdown of the alleged events at the Snedeker house. There are further details I omitted from my version of the story, both for brevity and due to the graphic depictions of rape allegedly suffered by Tammy, Carmen and Al at the hands of an unseen entity. So graphic, I didn't feel it right including them in an all-age-appropriate podcast. Additionally, as we'll see, there are many parts of this story which don't exactly add up. Let's start with the book written about the Snedeket experience, entitled A Dark Place. The book was written by Ray Gorton, who worked closely with the Snedekers to create an alleged accurate retelling. However, he began running into problems confirming both Al and Carmen's versions of events, with them often contradicting each other. With their inability to keep a straight story, Ray approached Ed Warren for assistance. Ed's rather telling response, according to Ray, was, Oh, they're both crazy. You've got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Make it up and make it scary. Now, I don't know about you, but not only does that throw everything we've just learnt about the haunting in Connecticut into doubt, but it also throws shade onto the careers of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Let me just remind you from the Enfield Poltergeist case, Morris Gross sent Ed and Lorraine packing when Ed took him to one side and told him he was sitting on a gold mine. It's sad that due to Hollywood, the Enfield Poltergeist story will now always be paired with Ed and Lorraine Warren, instead of a valid investigator like Morris. But back to the book's author. It will come as no surprise to find he distanced himself fully from the book since its release, referring to it as largely a work of fiction. Despite this, both the Snedekers and Warrens, and also John Zaffis, claim each and every account is the truth. The Snedekers' landlord, however, a Daryl Kern, has gone on record to state that far from Al discovering and being surprised that the house was a former funeral home, that the Snedekers were fully aware of its history before even viewing the house. Damningly, Kern also states he found it very convenient that the haunting started just as the Snedekers started falling behind in their rent, and they moved out before eviction procedures could begin. And then we have Sandy. Sandy lived in the upstairs of the house, and had done for months prior to the Snedekers. She stated there was no such haunting, and that the entire thing was invented by Alan Carmen for money. In fact, Sandy would go on to question the entirety of the alleged haunting also, due to a conversation she had with Carmen. Carmen had complained to Sandy she was having nightmares and struggling to sleep. Therefore, Sandy suggested 
that Carmen tries sleeping pills. However, in a quite matter-of-fact way, Carmen said, No, it's my father coming to haunt me. I'm going to call the Warrens. Finally, let's look at the exorcism itself. When Ed appeared on TV to discuss the case, he was asked to provide the name of the priest who carried out the exorcism. Ed replied, Father A. When pressed by the reporter for some more details, Ed replied aggressively, Father A, that's the name I'm giving you. I don't have to give you anything. Ed stated that evidence of the exorcism could be checked by anyone who looked at the official Catholic records for the area. However, many have done that, and the Archdiocese of Harford, which covered the area where the Snedekers lived, have no record of any exorcism taking place there. Ed would remain aggressive when challenged in all future TV interviews about the case, one time walking off during an interview. The interviewer said he was only asking certain questions to give Ed and the story some credibility. Ed replied, I don't care about credibility, pal. One thing that's for certain is the story we all know as the haunting in Connecticut is a terrifying version of events that would give even the most ardent horror watcher nightmares. However, if this case teaches us anything, it's that when you see, based on a true story, at the start of a scary film, maybe don't throw your scepticism away immediately. Let's also remember, however, the Snedekers, Warrens, John Zaffis, all claim this is true with Zaffis even saying he would lay his professional career and reputation on the line to say so. So, once again, I hope I've provided enough information for you to make your own mind up. Is it real? Is it a hoax? Or does it fall somewhere in between? I guess we'll never truly know. I would like to thank you for spending the time listening to this episode. Don't forget, if you have comments or feedback or would like to submit a story for Season 3 when we return to listener stories, you can send that email to thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com. And once again, if you'd like to become a supporter of the show and receive these episodes early, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. Until next time, Thank you for joining me on The Dark Paranormal. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off 
my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.